Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, James Beard nominated West Virginia chefs Mike Costello and Amy Dawson serve up special dishes with stories behind them. What came to mind for me was, um, you know, that image of all those women making those communion wafers and how it sort of represented to me the first memory that I have of people here or anywhere else making food as a community. And we'll visit an old-fashioned toy shop whose future was uncertain after its owners died. But there was a twist of fate. And all of a sudden he said, um, I could sell you this business. And I'm thinking, no, you know, I could never own this. We'll also be sharing a few memories of Christmas past, which may or may not resemble yours. How do you do it safely? I mean, so many of the holiday customs in my family involve consuming alcohol. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We begin our holiday trip over the river and through the woods to Harrison County, West Virginia. Mike Costello and Amy Dawson are the husband and wife duo behind Lost Creek Farm. The couple host farm-to-table suppers and were recently semi-finalists for the James Beard Award. They've entertained classical cellist Yo-Yo Ma and the late Anthony Bourdain. Mike and Amy serve dishes rooted in Appalachia's rich food traditions. And along with the meal, they share stories behind the recipes. To open their dinners, Mike and Amy typically kick things off with an appetizer, mashing up two food traditions from their childhoods. Folkways reporter Margaret Leaf brings us this story. Today at Lost Creek Farm, the birds are chirping and the sun is shining over the rolling meadows. I'm here with Mike Costello and Amy Dawson, and they're giving me a tour of the farm. We visit the chickens, and Mike tells me about some of the projects they're working on. We're building a fruit orchard. There were some apple trees here on the farm when we moved in, uh, some pear trees, uh, a lot of wild fruit, a lot of wild blackberries, elderberries, raspberries, those kinds of things. Mike and Amy have lived on this land for six years but it's been in Amy's family for close to 150 years. Amy learned a lot about working a farm when she would come to visit her grandparents. Growing up, my family always had a big garden, and we always would can. And so most of my summers were spent essentially doing food prep. Like if you live on a farm, you just do food prep all the time and food preservation. When Mike and Amy inherited the farm, it had been neglected for years. So they devoted themselves to getting the farm back in working order. The couple raised meat rabbits and laying hens. They foraged for foods in the surrounding woods. They raised vegetables from heirloom seeds entrusted to them by community members. And they've got their fruit orchard. Mike takes me down below the vegetable garden and chicken yard to the orchard. Yeah, a lot of these uh, trees that we have down here are little regional varieties of apples. Yesterday we grafted 21 trees that will go into the orchard. We'll, we'll plant them later this year. The couple will use these apples for a few different things, including apple butter. Amy says the apple butter is caramelized and tastes sweet. Mike likes to play around with flavors and adds bourbon and sage to hit some fiery and herby notes. For Amy, making apple butter takes her back to her childhood. Apple butter was the first experience that I had that I remember as a family, we would always can and it being kind of a community. Like it wasn't just my family that did it. It was friends and, you know, extended family would come and make the apple butter in the fall. The seasonal ritual of making apple butter helped Amy understand the connection between food and community. It's a daunting task to peel, core, and chop bushels of apples and then stir them for hours over heat before canning. If ever an event called for community effort, it's one like this one. And time spent cooking with large groups of neighbors and friends is as social as it is productive. Amy isn't the only one of the couple to grow up with memories of cooking and community. Mike grew up in Elkview, West Virginia, and he often accompanied his grandmother to Emanuel Baptist Church to make communion wafers. Something I have a lot of fond memories of when I was a kid 
her and the other elderly women in the church making communion wafers on Thursday and Friday mornings for Sunday service. And she would take my brother and I down there uh, on those mornings and we would sort of watch all these women rolling out these big sheets of dough and you know making these communion wafers. As an adult, Mike had put the wafers out of his mind until he discovered his grandmother's recipe. When my grandma died, I got her recipe collection and uh, I found this recipe in there for those communion wafers. For Mike, the significance of this recipe has little to do with religion. You know, we did not go to church with my grandma on Sundays. So, like, I never had any sort of idea of the religious significance of them. I just thought they were this tasty kind of snack, you know. <laughs> i kind of forgotten about them. Discovering the recipe brought back memories for Mike. What came to mind for me was, um, you know, that image of all those women making those communion wafers and how it sort of represented to me the first memory that I have of people here or anywhere else making food as a community. In their work today, Mike and Amy have merged these two traditions and are sharing them with others. Last year, they made an online video tutorial of how to make the wafers. In the video, Mike dips a small knife into a jar of their apple butter and spreads it on a crispy cracker for Amy. Did you try it yet with this apple butter? Yeah, that's really good. I love it. It's kind of funny that we snack on communion wafers so much. It's hilarious. Nobody ever believes us. They're so good. Uh People who know us or are familiar with our work know that we love to hone in on the stories behind the food that we make. And that's what makes these communion wafers so special to us. The recipe itself is simple. In the video tutorial, Mike and Amy put the ingredients together using a straightforward ratio. So then we'll add our water. Again, four parts, one part, one part. So we use one cup of flour. We're using one quarter cup of water, one quarter cup of oil. And it it comes together pretty quickly. Um, And you want it to be a nice even dough. It won't be sticky. Everything, if you get the ratio right, everything will come together and it'll clean the side of the bowls. In the recipes for both the apple butter and wafers, there's one ingredient that isn't tangible, but is just as important as the others. It's the group effort aspect of these recipes, the shared ritual of making food together. For Mike, this is especially true for the communion wafers. So I love to put those crackers on a plate to open our events when you can consume that at the dinner table and can consume the story that goes along with it. You know, you're connecting with people and you're connecting with thousands of years of history and all of the hands and all of the communities that it has passed through to get to that point. The apple butter and communion wafers are symbolic of the dinner events themselves, a place where people come together around Appalachian foods and traditions. Arriving at the farm, Guests are greeted with music and a warm fire burning outside. Under string lights and bright stars, folks are seated around the communal table, some meeting for the first time. Some of the foods served are simple, like apple butter and communion wafers. But there's more to it than that. If you just look at the ingredients, you look at the recipes, apple butter on a cracker is not that big of a deal, right? But to us, there's so much meaning packed into it. Part of that meaning is the communities of people who have shaped these two food traditions and the new communities Mike and Amy are creating at Lost Creek Farm. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Margaret McLeod-Leaf in Harrison County, West Virginia. Next is a follow-up to a 2019 story about Mountain Craft Shop Company, then run by Steve and Ellie Conlon, who made Appalachian folk toys. And this one is interesting. It's, we call it a musical marble tree. It's a wonderful noise, don't you think? That's Steve, back when Inside Appalachia visited their shop in Proctor, West Virginia. The shop is full of classic, old-fashioned toys, like musical marble trees and pop guns. Everybody knows the pop gun. Sadly, since that visit, Steve and Ellie died, which left the future of the business in question. But after a twist of fate, the next chapter of the Mountain Craft Shop Company is starting to take shape. 
Folkways reporter Zach Harold has the story. Steve Comlin knew everything about the toys he and his wife Ellie manufactured at the Mountain Craft Shop Company. This is a ball and cup. And this actually dates back to 1580 in England. He knew their history, the principle of physics that made them work, and the right technique to make the ball on the end of that string float right up into the air and come down perfectly inside the wooden cup. Good for eye-hand coordination. How long did it take you to get it on the third try? (laughs) I should be able to get it on the first try. (laughs) There was one thing Steve didn't know. However, he didn't know who was going to make these traditional toys once he and his wife were gone. How will it play out? We don't know yet. The reality of the situation is that we are manufacturing in America. Look around you. Manufacturing in America is, there's a lot of competition. I visited their small Wetzel County workshop in 2019. A year later, Ellie died from lung cancer. A year after that, Steve died from leukemia. That left the business in the hands of their son, Tara. Yeah, Tara. It's Latin for Earth. I was a Earth child, born on the born on the living room floor. Tara lives in San Francisco now, where he's a computer programmer. He's tried to run the business from afar since his parents' passing, but it hasn't really worked out. The company lost money last year, so he decided to try and sell. And for a while, that didn't work out either. Not the way he wanted, anyway. I, like, I had buyers that were interested in the businesses that were, you know, in PA or New York or something like that. And I'm like, like, ideally, I wanted to keep it in the location. The Mountain Craft Shop Company is so tied to Wetzel County, so tied to West Virginia, that even the wood used to make these toys comes from local trees that Tara's dad would cut, mill, and dry himself. Well, one day, while Tara was back in the Mountain State trying to wrap up his parents' affairs, Fred Goddard stopped by. Fred's a minister who lives just a few miles up the road. I saw some things for sale, and I thought, okay, that would be handy on the farm. So I pulled in, and he began to talk about the toy store, and I I began to share my memories with him. It turns out Fred's relationship with these toys goes back even farther than Tara's, before Tara's parents, even. See, Steve and Ellie were not the Mountain Craft Shop Company's original owners. They bought it in 2002 from its founder, Dick Shinaki. He started the company in the mid-1960s. He was a mechanical engineer by trade, but he didn't manufacture these toys. He handled the research and development and farmed out the manufacturing to a staff of artisans. But he displayed the toys in a little showroom near his home where shoppers could stop by and take them for a test drive. And Fred's mother used to take him to that toy store when he was a little boy. Dick would stand and talk for hours. He would explain how the toys were made. He wanted us to see every toy in the store, not just, you know, what we were interested in, but he wanted to show us everything. And Fred doesn't only have his memories. I still have a few of the toys that we purchased out there. I have a uh, uh, rubber band gun. And that one, of course, uh, tended to get me into some trouble around the house. As Fred walked around the Conlon's toy shop reminiscing, Tara floated an idea. And all of a sudden he said, "Um, I could sell you this business. And I'm thinking, no, you know, I could never own this. Um, And he made an offer and I realized I can't pass this up. The timing was almost too perfect. Fred has experienced some loss of his own recently. His wife of 33 years died last December from COVID. But he's found love again with a widow who also lost her husband to COVID, and they're engaged. And his fiance, if you can believe it, she's a woodworker. Fred plans to keep on any current employees who want to stay and also recruit some additional elves to help build toys. The company won't be able to stay in its current facility, but Fred plans to find a storefront to display the toys just like Dick Shinaki once had. Tara says it's exactly what his parents would have wanted. I'm, I'm super pumped that not only is it someone in West Virginia, but it's also someone in Wetzel County. My mom spent so much time, so much effort 
developing, you know, the West Virginia grown and the whole, you know, mountain state marketing. I like that. And Fred's just happy he'll be able to give kids the same kind of toys and the same kind of memories that he has. This area, this state, this country, this world needs this store. It's a difficult responsibility. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harrell. Tara Conlon is also selling his late parents' honey company, Thistle Dew Farms, which at one point was featured on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. So if you know someone who wants to get into the bee business, get in touch. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose As part of this special holiday episode, we asked some friends to share their holiday memories and traditions. Our first comes from author Nima Avashia, who describes the multi-denominational, multicultural holiday celebrations in her home. Here she is reading from her book, Another Appalachia, coming up queer and Indian in a mountain place. In my adult life, ritual has fully supplanted faith when it comes to the question of religion. My partner, Laura, is the product of a Catholic father and a Jewish mother. In October, we go to Navratri Garbas, held in middle schools in the northern suburbs of Boston. In November, we celebrate Diwali by cooking a big dinner and setting off illegal fireworks. We have a menorah and a Christmas tree in our living room in December, and the tree is decorated with a hodgepodge of ornaments representing a set of identities that could only happen in our home. A menorah and an ohm, Brooklyn and West Virginia, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Frederick Douglass, pickles, pizza, and rainbows. A tiny altar sits in our pantry, upon which reside Hindu idols, along with a tiny glass Jesus that a student gave me as a gift. Guilt prevents me from discarding it. Sometimes Laura comes home to the pervasive smell of incense. Sometimes I fry up a batch of latkes to celebrate Hanukkah. But rarely, usually in, only in cases of a marriage, a funeral, or a high holiday, do either of us cross the threshold of temples, synagogues, or churches. Later in the show, we learn about a Greek Orthodox tradition that's continued on in the coalfields of southern West Virginia. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu. If you listen to Inside Appalachia, you know our theme song. It's by Matt Jackford. He's the host of West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Classical Music Afternoons. And he's a member of a rock band. And a classical musician, composer, and arranger. Last holiday season, days before Matt was supposed to travel to Carnegie Hall in New York, Andrea Billups spoke with him about his music and one of his more popular seasonal tunes, an arrangement of I Saw Three Ships. So I wanted to start out and ask you about this song. Tell us a little bit about the history of Three Ships, right? Yeah, it's I Saw Three Ships, so that's the traditional Christmas carol that you hear. And what I've done is take that melody and transform it into something else. Um, it's its own standalone, you know, or almost original piece, just takes that melody and turns it into a symphonic, you know, arrangement that's different than what you would normally hear when you listen to the carol, I Saw Three Ships. How did you get started and your interest in classical music and, and further composing? 
So I actually, you know, didn't really write until the end of high school. I started writing on Finale. Actually, my band director loaned me his copy of music software Finale, and I started just making up songs with it and pieces and, you know, just playing around and having fun. And then, you know, went to college as a biology major for the first two years and then was just writing so much that I decided to, you know, give composition a shot as a major. And so I switched my major in my sophomore year to music composition so that I could be doing it all the time because that's what I wanted to do. That's I was skipping biology homework to write pieces of music. And so I eventually was like, well, I, won't, I might as well get credit for it. So changed my major and did that and then just took off. It just kept snowballing. You know, eventually it was played by the, you know, ensembles at West Virginia University and then um, got a won a reading with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra and from there went to graduate school at UT in Austin and you know everything has just taken off since then. How do you get a greater audience or even maybe a younger audience? You're a young man and you're fascinated it seems by this type of music. How do we cultivate that here in West Virginia? What I'd like to do on my show is to play more contemporary music so it's more relatable to the sounds of today. Um, I also like to, you know, highlight different kinds of music like film scores, for instance. That's a big part of my show is a film score Friday where we take and break down um, soundtracks from different films that are come out or different shows. And I think people are really interested in that because when you get a picture to classical music, you it's easier to understand and relate to because a lot of times for the lay listener, classical may be, you know, a little complex, but if you put a picture to it, you know, it's very easy to ingest, I think. And that's what I try to do is make sure to have new music, you know, relatable music, um, or even old music that is transformed in a new way, a different way that's, you know, more striking to the ear. Anything else that you would share with us about this piece of music? I'm just really grateful for the opportunity that conductors and orchestras have given me. And, you know, I'm it's a pretty rare experience to be able to be played in some of these amazing halls. So I'm looking forward to going up to Carnegie Hall and actually taking a listen to it. So you're actually going to go? Yeah, I'm going to. I think I've bought the plane tickets. I've got the uh, tickets to the hall and I'm ready to go sit down in Carnegie Hall and take a listen to this piece. Is that a big moment for your musical life especially? Well, last or two years ago, I was at the Kennedy Center and they were playing it with the National Symphony and I thought, where you know, how how can I improve? How can I get better? You know, what's the next step? And I thought, well, what if I got to Carnegie Hall? I mean, at that time I was like that's never going to happen. And then here I am 2 years later, I bought plane tickets to go up to see my piece getting played at Carnegie Hall. So I guess, you know, anything's possible. Matt's Holiday Music had a pretty good year in 2022. Several of his pieces, including I Saw Three Ships, were performed by symphonies in West Virginia as well as in Cleveland and Detroit. When you're a kid, let's face it, the best part of the holidays are the presents. By the time you become an adult, presents are still nice. But really, it's all about the pie. Our next seasonal memory comes from news director Eric Douglas. I really don't like pumpkin pie. I know that's sacrilegious for some people, but I really just can't stand pumpkin pie. For me, though, the holidays are about pecan pie. When I was growing up, my mother always made a special pecan pie. She told me later that she got it out of some cookbook that was commonly available. But I don't know that anybody makes a pecan pie the way my mother makes a pecan pie. Instead of pecan halves floating on top of a pie full of jelly that's just kind of gross, my mom's pecan pie has chopped pecans all the way through it, and it the texture is just completely different and, and really pretty amazing. I've loved that pecan pie, and it's ruined me for anybody else's pecan pie at a restaurant, at a at a personal event. Several years ago, uh, I kind of took over making that pecan pie. And it's, but I used my mom's recipe, the original recipe out of some 
nameless cookbook that she photocopied it out of years and years ago. As my mom actually has, has declined in health, she's no longer able to make that pecan pie. Uh, and again, I, it's, it's my thing to make anymore. But it helps me remember, it makes me think of those holidays, Christmas parties, going to my grandmother's, uh, that mom would always show up with a pecan pie wrapped in tin foil, fresh out of the fridge where it had to sit for 24 hours. Always show up at, at family parties with that, and she was known for it. She gave that recipe out to everybody. But I don't know that anybody else made it like she did. For me, pecan pie says the holidays. Recipes for the Christmas feast, like pecan pie, get handed down for generations. But what about recipes for a Christmas fast? At St. Mary's Orthodox Church in Bluefield, West Virginia, parishioners spend the 40 days before Christmas abstaining from eggs, meat, and dairy. But that doesn't mean they still can't enjoy something a little sweet. Folkways reporter Connie Bailey Kitts has this story about a Greek Appalachian cookie recipe. I'm sifting um, the flour, six cups of flour, and four teaspoons of baking soda, excuse me, baking powder. And um, I've already sifted most of it, so I've got it ready. My friend Jenny Chrysicus is getting ready to make cookies for her church's St. Nicholas Day bake sale. But this isn't just any cookie. This particular cookie is a fasting cookie. In the Orthodox tradition, we fast before we feast. We, we prepare ourselves for the Nativity of Christ by some abstinence from dairy, meat products, and it's a kind of a self-emptying in a way in preparation for bringing Christ into our uh, lives for, at Christmas. Jenny is an Orthodox Christian. She's also Greek-American. The recipe she uses for these fasting cookies is from a Greek cookbook, but it's a variation of her grandmother's cookie. In Greece, we call it melomakarona. And melomakarona is kind of a synthesis of the word meli, meaning honey, and makarona in ancient Greece at a um, meal for departed after a funeral, a bulgur mixture would be served called makaria. We are in Jenny's small home kitchen. There's not much counter space, so our cookbook is propped up in the windowsill in front of lace curtains and alongside several orthodox icons. Jenny wears an apron over her striped sweater and pants. She recently retired as a social worker and right now is in the middle of translating a book from Greek to English. This is the house where Jenny and her brother grew up with their parents and grandparents, three generations cooking and eating together. One of the flavorings in the cookie is orange zest. Recipes that don't have the dairy ingredients in them, you have to put some flavoring in it, like a citrus flavoring, to compensate for them what's maybe missing in the dairy. Other ingredients include flour, plant-based margarine, sugar, and walnuts. <laughs> the nuts have to be ground first in a nut grinder. These cookies are part of Jenny's fasting tradition, but she says fasting is not just about eating or not eating. It's about preparing her heart on many levels and goes hand in hand with prayer and giving to those in need and a letting go of other things as well. It's, it's more than just a fasting from food, it's a fasting from anger, fasting from passions that make our lives difficult in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Jenny's using the same nut grinder her mother used, and her grandmother's cast iron grinder is under the counter. This is the same counter of the same house where Jenny sat on the stool to watch her grandparents cook many Greek dishes, including this cookie. My grandmother's admonition was, watch me, watch me, watch what I do, and that'll help you learn. I think I may need to put a little bit more orange juice in. Jenny's family had many good cooks who brought their skills with them when they immigrated from Greece. My grandfather came to this area, McDowell County, in 1910, and uh, he was a baker 
in Greece in the village area where he lived. So I always think of him when I'm doing some of these uh, recipes. I'm mixing the cinnamon in with the um, walnuts. Her grandfather went back to Greece to fight in the Balkan Wars in 1912, but returned again to this country. He married Jenny's grandmother when she arrived from Greece at Ellis Island. They moved to Welch, West Virginia, where Jenny's mother was born. Her grandfather helped run the Capital Lunch restaurant with a fellow Greek. There's a, a, a joke, when Greek meets Greek, they open a restaurant. I don't know if, if it's in the genes or what with the Greek people, but that's something we're known for. In fact, her father also worked in restaurants as a young man. He had come to America as a refugee after he went with the Greek government into exile during the Nazi occupation. He got jobs as either a cook or manager at five Bluefield restaurants, including Paul's Grill, the Matt's Hotel, and the Pinnacle, working alongside fellow Greeks. The owner of Jimmy's Grill in Bluefield introduced him to Jenny's mother. They married, and she taught elementary school, and he eventually became a professor at what is now Concord University. By the mid-1950s, three generations of Jenny's family were living together in this house in Bluefield with fruit trees and a garden in the backyard. Jenny learned Greek early. The lessons were in that little breakfast nook with my grandmother on Saturday mornings. <laughs> I have the book, in fact. It was the Greek version of Tom, Dick, and Harry, you know. Jenny transfers the dough onto a board and uses her hands to knead it. She pinches off small pieces to flatten into oval shapes. Then she puts a teaspoon of the nut mixture in the middle and folds them closed. She crimps the top for decoration and puts them on a cookie sheet. The oven is ready. Okay, here's the timer. I think I'll put it on 25. The kitchen's getting warmer, but Jenny kept the porch door open and we feel a breeze. It conjures up a memory of her grandfather, who learned his baking skills as an apprentice in the Pentas Mountains of Greece. That's why I think he liked West Virginia, because it was all mountains here and he felt at home. You know, he would sit on the porch, it faced Easter Mountain, and he would say, look, just like my village, you know, he enjoyed the mountains here, he loved this area. These southern West Virginia mountains also attracted immigrants from the Carpathian region of Eastern Europe and parts of Ukraine. They came to be coal miners. Many had Orthodox Christian roots. Jenny says they found a home in McDowell County. Families arrived there in the late 1800s, and they built this little church, which had to be rebuilt in 1913 because of a fire. This was St. Mary's Church, built in the coal mining town of Elkhorn. Its onion-shaped gold dome was easily spotted by cars and coal trucks traveling in and out of the coal fields on Route 52. The church became part of the Carpatho-Russian Orthodox Diocese in America. Services were in the Slavic language. In 2000, the church moved to Bluefield. Its three gold domes are silhouetted against East River Mountain. Over the years, the parish has become more multi-ethnic and its services are now conducted in English. For the 40 days leading up to Christmas, many Orthodox fast, with allowances given. They pray and give alms. Father Michael Foster, the priest at St. Mary's, says these practices can go together in very practical ways. And so one of the things I always try to tell people, the money that you're saving from your fasting, uh, give it as alms. Um, the time that you're saving worried over food, uh, use it for prayer. One person who serves as a model to many Orthodox is the beloved St. Nicholas. Now we're talking about the real St. Nicholas, the early Christian bishop and patron saint of children and travelers. He's honored on December 6th. St. Nicholas was Greek and lived in what's present-day Turkey. He was also well-known for his secret gift-giving, 
which might be why he's considered the early model of Santa Claus. Um, I think the thing that I would love people to remember is he's more than just a stand-in for Santa Claus. There's so many stories that revolve around his acts of charity and generosity. How much giving that he did to the poor and to prisoners, people that were disadvantaged and had never gotten any sort of help before. And to let the community learn more about the true identity of this real St. Nicholas, the parish began holding a dinner and bake sale several years ago. Every year, Jenny makes her fasting cookies. Five more minutes. While the cookies are still in the oven, Jenny offered to sing me one of the hymns of the season. There's a beautiful Greek uh, Orthodox hymn that I know in Greek that talks about the birth of Christ. But... I'll be embarrassed if I can't do it. <laughs> I'll try it. Christos yenate doxasate, Christos exurano apandisate, Christos epigis ipsothite asate ton The timer goes off and the cookies are done, but Jenny will hold off on the last step till she's ready to take them to the church. I'll dip them in hot honey syrup because that's really what gives its, its character. It makes it very flavorful. Her treats will join a table spread of others that show the ethnic roots of the parish. Romanian truffles, Greek baklava, Slavic nut horns, and let's not forget about good old Appalachian fried apple pies. And on Christmas Day, the day of the nativity, the fast will end and the special feast will begin. I wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Christos Yanate Doxasate. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Connie Bailey Kitts in Bluefield, West Virginia. That story, along with others in this episode, is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. You can find photos of fasting cookies, old-fashioned toys, and communion wafers with apple butter on our website, wvpublic.org. Growing up, my family traveled to see grandparents at the holidays. Whether that was my dad's parents in Illinois going over the mountain to my grandpa's farm outside Covington, it seemed like we were always driving somewhere in December. A lot of folks share that experience. Reporter Curtis Tate remembers being a teenage driver traveling the roads of Appalachia from Kentucky to Washington, D.C. No matter how you go from my hometown in Kentucky to where my grandparents lived near Washington, D.C., you had to cross Appalachia to get there. The usual route took us along the Wilderness Road, the original pathway for the earliest Kentucky settlers from Virginia via the Cumberland Gap. Until the highway tunnel under Cumberland Gap opened when I became an adult, you had to go over it. Now, it probably wasn't the exact path of Daniel Boone and other pioneers, but it was pretty treacherous, especially in the winter. Some called it Massacre Mountain. The year I turned 16, my dad handed over the keys to me for a good part of our holiday trip. Much of the old wilderness road between Interstate 75 and 81 was slow in two lanes. Not a bad way for a teenage driver to get some experience. You seldom could go over 50 miles an hour. You'd get stuck behind a truck carrying logs or coal, or maybe a local resident on a grocery or post office run. But you had to watch your speed, especially in those small towns in Virginia. You know which ones I mean, where the limit drops from 55 to 25 and the local sheriff is waiting for you. When the local sheriff wasn't watching your speed, Dad was. The terrain also limited your speed. Lots of mountain summits with great views from the top. You could go a little faster in the broad valleys, but you were still far off the quicker interstate. When my dad learned to drive, these were the only roads. Years later, I revisited this well-worn path through southwest Virginia and southeast Kentucky. The tunnel replaced the dangerous passage over the mountain. The old highway was even removed, Elsewhere, a new four-lane divided highway had bypassed the earlier road. The Wilderness Road, not just a road for me, but a rite of passage. Hey, it's Christmas, everybody! Don't you want to go home? We all want to go home for Christmas, I know I do. Oh, Christmas! 
Christmas times are coming, Christmas times are coming, Christmas times are coming, and I know I'm going home. Fresh baked gingerbread usually conjures up thoughts of Christmas and maybe little frosted houses. But in southeast Kentucky, when people of a certain age hear gingerbread, they think election day. Folklorist and Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave traces the surprising history of gingerbread in Knott County, Kentucky, from everyday treat to election time tradition to fundraising champion. In her cozy kitchen in Hyman, Kentucky, Larue Lafferty watches over as her teenage grandson Jackson cracks the eggs for a fresh batch of gingerbread. He's been a good egg breaker since he was just about two or three years old. <laughs> I think I'll do the vanilla next. Get the right measurements. If you ask folks around Knott County who the best gingerbread bakers are, LaRue's name usually comes up. I don't really profess to be a gingerbread-making queen, but I do make a lot. Growing up, gingerbread was a year-round household staple. Anytime we went to grandmother's, she had it, and my mother made it all the time. She kept it made. Knott County gingerbread isn't the crisp, snappy cookies, and it's not the moist, fluffy cake. It's somewhere in between. Bob Young is a local historian born and raised in Knott County. The gingerbread as we knew it here was just glorified biscuit and full, absolutely full of molasses. Before white sugar became easily accessible in southeast Kentucky, molasses was the primary sweetener. Every fall, sugarcane farmers hosted stir-offs. Folks gathered to watch as the sugarcane juice was boiled down to a sticky syrup, and they left with full jars to stock their pantries. Back in the kitchen, Jackson cracks open a jar of molasses. Puts in two cups of molasses. Aside from powdered ginger, the other ingredients, flour, fresh eggs, buttermilk, and lard, were things people already had on hand. That made gingerbread inexpensive, says Bob. Gingerbread uh, was something that anybody, anybody, nearly, could, uh, could get. One place you were sure to find gingerbread in Knott County was at the polls on Election Day, says LaRue. The candidates, they would hire good gingerbread makers in the community to make gingerbread, and they would give it out at the polls. In the 40s and 50s, when Bob and LaRue were growing up, it was a common practice. <laughs> Republicans on this side and the Democrats on that side. By the time you voted, you'd have a handful of gingerbread. It was just a nice little way ask for a vote. They didn't call it buying votes, but it's about what it amounted to. <laughs> Corbett Mullins, another Knott County native, remembers his grandmother as a sought-after gingerbread maker. She would go with her baskets of gingerbread to the polling grounds and hand out the gingerbread in that candidate's name. During the 1960s, Corbett says people began handing out something else. I hate to say it, but Gingerbread was replaced by liquor. I mean, it was. Then in 1974, Kentucky passed a law against campaigning within 100 feet of a polling place. This was the final blow for political gingerbread. But surviving recipes may hold clues that link gingerbread and elections. Bob Young has noticed that a lot of recipes make huge batches. Why, some of those old recipes take a five-pound bag of flour. He says that's because bakers made the dessert for the masses on Election Day. LaRue's recipe makes 60 pieces and uses eight to nine cups of flour. She determines the amount as she goes, based on the batter's thickness. The hum of the mixer fills the kitchen as it works the batter. LaRue watches as her grandson Jackson adds flour. Then they check the consistency. I believe you need just a little more flour. I believe it's going to go down too fast, don't you? Yeah. yeah. It's a little bit yeah. too glossy. Yeah, a little too wet, yeah. Put about another, close to another cup. These days, the annual Knott County Gingerbread Festival celebrates gingerbread's ties to politics and features a gingerbread competition. There are lots of variations of this regional dessert, and everyone has their own preferences. Corbett, who chaired the festival for decades, says texture is key. I have had gingerbread that's been as dry as the Sahara Desert. As soon as you get it chewed up, you have to have a drink of water to, to refresh your mouth. Bob is focused on ginger. Sometimes it would almost burn your tongue. Some people liked it really hot. 
And that was one of the things they'll say, how hot is this? How much ginger has it got in it? Back in the kitchen, Jackson scoops batter onto a metal baking sheet. See how when he puts it down there, it kind of holds its shape and then barely starts spreading out. That's what we're looking for when we're looking at the thickness of it. Over the years, LaRue's placed in the gingerbread competition a lot. One year, she entered three batches using different recipes. And I come in first place and tied myself on second. So I didn't enter anymore for a long, long time after that because I thought, well, that's good enough. <laughs> the festival was canceled this year because of the pandemic, which was disappointing for LaRue. I threatened to go up there and sit down on the street and put up a sign and have my own little festival. <laughs> These days, Not County bakers sell gingerbread to fundraise for local causes and to earn extra cash. LaRue's daughter-in-law has made close to 4,000 pieces of gingerbread this year, selling enough to raise nearly $2,000 for her church. Jackson sold the batch he's making today to a relative. One year, he made enough to buy himself a bike. LaRue's glad her grandchildren are continuing the Knott County gingerbread tradition, and it gives her comfort to know they have a skill they can rely on if they need to. Later on, uh, when they get a little older and... uh... Maybe they need some extra cash. Maybe they can make some gingerbread. be a good, clean way to make a little extra money. The kitchen is fragrant with the mingling of ginger, cinnamon, and clove. The oven timer goes off, and LaRue takes out the pan. Once the gingerbread cools, Jackson takes a bite and assesses his work. I think it turned out pretty good. It's, uh, it's not too dry, but it's still moist. And it's still got the crispy edges on it, which I really like on gingerbread. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Knott County, Kentucky. A lot of folks like to have a drink or two, or three, during holiday festivities. Trey Kay, host of the podcast Us and Them, tells us about his family's novel way to avoid drinking and driving. In the years after my siblings and I left the nest and went out to start our respective families, we still love to migrate home to Charleston for Christmas. Some of my family was still headquartered in Charleston, and some of my sibs lived in other parts of the state, and the rest of us were in various parts of the country. And each year, I faced a similar challenge. I'd really look forward to seeing my family, of course, but I really wanted to connect with some old friends. And quite often, my parents and other relatives would have plans for me to meet with their friends and other work colleagues. And of course, this finite amount of time that I had for being in West Virginia over the holidays was never ample enough to do all of the visiting that I wanted to do. So what to do? How can you make time to go out and visit more of your old friends when there is such an expectation to stay at home with your family? And more importantly, if you do try to go out, how do you do it safely? I mean, so many of the holiday customs in my family involve consuming alcohol. For a couple of years, my mom had a great solution. She hired the Charleston Trolley. That's the bus that looks like a streetcar. And we'd pile our extended family inside, along with coolers stocked with booze and and plates of Christmas cookies. And in the spirit of my show, Us and Them, on that trolley, we had all parts of our family. Uh, Represented were the button-down country club conservative Republican wing. We had the country redneck wing. And we also had the delegation from the lefty, crunchy granola, let your freak flag fly wing. And together, we made a merry band of liquored up adults traveling with our little kids hyped up on sugar. And we were flying high and feeling no pain. And there was no room for division. Our trolley made stops at homes all around the Kanawha Valley. And we serenaded various friends with Christmas carols. We even visited a couple of elder care facilities, warbling out Christmas classics, Jingle Bells, Rudolph, White Christmas, and a pretty sweet rendition of Silent Night. (laughs) We weren't the most tuneful crew, 
But what we lacked in musicianship, we made up for in bold, boozy enthusiasm. The whole thing was fun and meaningful. Those of us who grew up in Charleston got to reconnect with people that had been very important in our childhood. And those in our party who were not from Charleston got to experience the wonderful spirit of our beautiful town at the loveliest time of year. The best thing is that we were all safe in our revelry, and everyone had a great time, and we all made it home in one piece. This week's last segment is a musical gift for you. For the last 30 years, Mountain Stage's resident piano man, Bob Thompson, has hosted his own holiday extravaganza called Joy to the World. It's a perennial favorite in Charleston, and West Virginia Public Broadcasting has recorded a bunch of these shows. You can find them on the station's YouTube channel. This year's 30th anniversary coincides with Bob's 80th birthday. So in honor of both, here's the Bob Thompson unit performing Silver Bells. Season's greetings, y'all. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by the Sycamores, Landau Eugene Murphy Jr., Jim Hendricks, Tammy Wynette, Dolly Parton, and Bob Thompson. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply.